You take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 25 in this Christmas sermon series. Takes us there. Uh, The title of the sermon this morning is A Humble Father with Extraordinary Faith. In his book, The Insanity of God, Nick Ripkin tells a story that compels Christians to challenge their concept of what it means to be a Christian. The author, Nick, has taken on a different name to protect his family and protect his friends and his colleagues. You see, he served for years as a missionary in a war-torn country in the Horn of Africa, Somaliland also known as Somalia. He arrived in 1992. He hopped a Red Cross uh, plane into the country. He had no itinerary, no plane flight. Nobody knew where he was except for his family, which was in Nigeria, in Nairobi, Nigeria, where he had been serving as a missionary. He wanted to see what was going on in the country for his own self, to see how he might be of some kind of assistance to these people. In 1992, the country was torn, as I said, by civil war. He landed on a single airstrip that was bombed out. He walked past a hangar where planes used to be that now housed a base for rebels in the country. They were taking naps on cases of bombs, hand grenades, AK-47s, ammunition. That was his welcoming party into the country. He went to the capital city and he was unprepared for what he would see. There were no schools, no hospitals, no running water, no electricity, no food supplies. They were in the middle of a drought and they had been devastated by over six years of civil war. Ripken entitled his book, The Insanity of God, which might catch your ear, because he was a farm boy from the heartland of America, Kentucky. Raised in poverty, his parents tenant farmers, his grandparents tenant farmers for wealthy landowners that didn't live on their farms but needed someone to do the hard work. He rose every morning at 4 o'clock. He milked 20 cows by hand. He did his morning chores. He ate his breakfast, got on a bus at 6 o'clock, rode for two hours to get to his school. He went to school. He returned for two hours on the bus and then did his afternoon chores. He ate supper, went to bed, hit repeat seven days a week. He attended church, his family not particularly religious. His mom and dad dropped him and his older brother off. He says in the early chapters, I think now looking back, what they really loved about church was it was free babysitting for a couple of hours on Sunday. His dad took pride in pointing out all the failures of the Christians in their community, the hypocrites as he would call them. But while sitting in a church service on Easter morning, One Sunday, early in his life, when he was about 11 years old, the preacher rose and began to preach the story of Jesus' crucifixion. 
And something was different. You see, at seven years old, his older brother had said, you're old enough to be saved. You need to go down and tell the preacher during the altar call that you want to be baptized. He didn't know what he was doing. He went down, talked to the pastor. The pastor counseled him the next day, called his mom and said, I don't think your son really knows the gospel, but I'm afraid if we don't baptize him, he'll get discouraged in his faith. So they baptized him the next Sunday. But at 11, he's sitting in a pew, not much different from yours. The place is packed, and the story of Jesus' crucifixion is being told again. Except this time, in Nick's mind, the truths are taking hold. And in his heart, he is being compelled toward belief in this one called Jesus. And he can hardly contain himself from shouting out and calling for someone to help Jesus. But he notices, what restrains him is he notices all the people in the pews with him. The people that he went to football games and basketball games with that would scream their lungs out. But as he looked across the audience that day, he noticed none of them was being moved. All of them were sitting rather rather resolutely firm in their disposition. Unmoved. And he concluded in his 11-year-old mind, this must not be anything to get excited about. Secondly, he concluded, these people have heard it so many times that to them, it means nothing. I tell you that because we are talking about a text and a story where it's very easy, I believe, for us who have been in the faith for a long time, to kind of glaze over, as I said last week. To think, what's the big deal? Jesus was born. Hallelujah. Let's get to dinner. It was from this experience, and many like it, as Nick grew in his faith, that he felt the call to not be a veterinarian, as his father had wanted, but once he graduated from college, to go into missions. And he found himself in Somalia. And it was there that he recognized that this story is worth dying for. Have you become so familiar with the story of Christmas, which is revealed in this text and others, that now you are unmoved by its power? You sit glazed over. Not really taking in the depth of what God did in sending His Son. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do those words ring hollow in your heart? pass by your mind they're assumed at this point one way to get energized again about a story is to see the story from a little different angle take a different perspective so as I read this text and preach this sermon I pray that God will re-energize you this morning about what he did from the perspective of as Bruce said one character that we often forget is Simeon and Anna but I believe the most forgotten character of the Christmas narrative The very most forgotten is Joseph. 
Everybody preaches about Mary. Everybody talks rightly about Jesus and the shepherds and the magi and all the other characters that we have come to us. But how many sermons have you heard on Joseph? I hope that by taking a different approach maybe to what you're used to, we'll be able to re-energize your heart towards what God did in this most amazing story. Matthew 1 verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, Matthew is a gospel that's filled with promise and fulfillment. God said this in the Old Covenant and He made it happen this way in Jesus' life. He brought it about. He's also an author that is consumed with, with the thought that the Jewish hope has come. And he does that through his genealogy. Notice in the very first verse of this chapter, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's the introduction of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the story of Jesus. Like Genesis was the story of the beginning Matthew is saying, this is the story of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And he begins the, gene the, the genealogy at Abraham. Now Luke, in his account of the genealogy of Jesus, in Luke 3, he gives us a perspective from Joseph back down through time to Adam to God Himself. But notice Matthew starts with the Jewish heritage of Jesus. He wants the Jews to understand that it is Jesus Christ who is the promised Savior, the one who would fulfill all of the shadows and types of the Old Testament. So now the birth of Jesus Christ in verse 18 took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed, legally promised in marriage. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, began, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. First of all, we see in this text the scandal of the blessed event. There's a scandal involved here, isn't there? A seeming misstep. Sudden shock of pregnancy has hit this young family. If you look at verse 18, it says, When his mother had been betrothed. In the ancient times, especially in the Jewish culture, betrothal, we often compare it to engagement. I think that's 
obvious comparison, but it's not really good. Because when people in our culture get engaged, it's simply the forward step from a time of dating. Betrothal is nothing like that. Betrothal is the coming together of two families in a covenant that the children will be married. Often it is between families who have known each other for a long time, and often it is between two individuals, a man and a woman, who don't really have any romantic affection for one another at all. They haven't been on dates. They haven't been going to the movies. They haven't been entertaining the thoughts of the blessed events that will take place on their marriage night. They simply were told, you will marry this one. And that was it. It was a legal agreement. The two families were being joined as one family. And from the moment of betrothal, they were treated as married people. Except living together and having sex. In every other way, they came together. The finances, the plans... The preparations were all focused on them being one family. In the betrothal period, a husband was expected to make his mark. He was supposed to take land, build a home, prepare a career, and it was a year's time that it was done. Basically one year. Okay, And they needed that year to get prepared. I mean, it's not a simple thing to build a house, prepare a dwelling. For a, for a wife. I'm sure women were just as opinionated about how the house should look in that day as they are today, fellas. Can't you just see them with the architectural plans? Honey, won't this be great? This great common room and our bed will be right up here. And No, 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 honey. We need a partition here and we need a cutout over there and the kitchen's in the, all the wrong place. I can just imagine the conversation. Right? Good breaking in for marriage. Good preparation. That's the period that they're in here, Joseph and Mary. They are not just hoping to get married. They are in every way except the final act of sexual engagement. They are married. So it's a sudden shock to Joseph, I'm certain, when he finds out that Mary has a child. I mean, it's kind of assumed on our part that that's what happened, but think about it from Joseph's perspective. The difficulty mentally of the breach of the betrothal. Because in his mind, there's only one way children are conceived. He knows he has not taken his wife to be his wife sexually. And he knows that she's pregnant. I mean, it's somewhat scandalous in our day still, although the stigma's being removed quicker and quicker. But it's somewhat scandalous in our day if a woman is pregnant outside of marriage. But in the Jewish culture, in the time in which Joseph lived, he knows the people of the community will assume one of two things. One, Mary has been unfaithful. Two, Joseph has been unfaithful. This is the scandal that he faces. This is the breach that has been taking place in his mind. Joseph is just overwhelmed, I can imagine, with the thoughts of what has taken place. But there's a blessing here. It's not a scandal at all. 
It's a blessing. It's an, it's an apparent scandal, but not a real scandal. Because look at what the text says in verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child, where? From the Holy Spirit. Mary is a virgin. And she is now with child from. He proceeds out of the Trinity. Out of the Godhead. He's from the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a little about that now together. Because I want to focus on Joseph, but I don't want to pass over this. I want to make sure we understand just the waters we're delving into. The word virgin in the Hebrew... Like it is used in Isaiah 7 verse 14 in the prophecy of Isaiah to the king about the one that will be born from a virgin. The word virgin in the Hebrew means simply young woman. Many critical scholars have tried to announce or put away the announcement by saying, well, it didn't mean she hadn't had sexual relations. It simply meant she wasn't married and she was young. Matthew won't allow that. Matthew, it gives us the answer. This is not simply a young woman. This is a woman that has not been with any man in a sexual way. She's literally a virgin, not just a young woman. That's the first thing. It's not a virgin birth. It's a virgin conception. Now, I I say that because it's important. Some churches go too far, one particularly the Roman Catholic Church, and they preach the perpetual virginity of Mary that's not the case at all how do we know that because the Lord has brothers and sisters he's the oldest of a family of children God did not say Mary will forever be a virgin Joseph take her as your husband I mean take her as your wife you her husband and then don't ever be sexually uh, active with her he never said that this is a virgin conception how did it take place God overshadowed her with the Holy Spirit. That is given to us in Luke. That exact wording comes from Luke 2. That the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of Mary. The Greek construction there points us back to the famous beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God did what? hovered over the face of the deep. The word overshadowed is in the same family as that hovered. The Spirit of God did in the womb of Mary what He did at the very beginning of time. He created out of nothing something. There was no male interaction so that what was necessary to fertilize the egg and bring it into the womb and make a baby, that wasn't there. So God, the Holy Spirit, hovered over the womb. He overshadowed it. And He brought forth a child. It's a virgin conception by the power of God in the womb of a young woman who had never been with a man. God came into the world as a man at that point. John chapter 1 tells us what we need to know about this. In John 1, the book of John is very different from the other synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels follow a path of Jesus' historical life. John takes up a theology. 
John tells stories of Jesus, but his point is to tell the theology behind the stories of Jesus' life. And he starts out his, his telling of the coming of Jesus the same way. In John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Lagos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was with God. He was the Son, the eternal Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity. This is the one we're talking about in Matthew that was brought into the human flesh in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit that created it like He did the world at the beginning. The same power that created the world created a son. A human baby boy. He took the eternal second person of the Trinity and brought it into the womb, into the seed of God, into the womb of Mary. And brought forth a baby. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. The child was born. The son was given by the Holy Spirit. That's how this came about. There was no hanky-panky on the side of the betrothal. There was no unfaithfulness in Joseph. There was no unfaithfulness in Mary. There was faithfulness in God. Get that. God was being faithful. So what appeared to be a scandal was actually a blessing of a holy pregnancy. John goes on to say in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But Hebrews says it maybe most eloquently. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I can hardly wait to get here. We might camp out here for a month or more in our journey through Hebrews. Hebrews 2, verse 14. The Bible says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through, the, through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's a lot of theology there. We don't have time to unpack this morning, but let me just tell you, Jesus took on flesh because you and I are fleshly. We are, have blood coursing through our veins. So Jesus took on that same type of flesh for you and for me. He stepped down from the right hand of God where He had dwelled from all eternity in the Shekinah glory, in the holy existence of the love of the Trinity. And He came into the virgin's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. He put on flesh and He dwelt among us. Why would He do such a thing? Because you're in the flesh and I'm in the flesh. And so He Himself shares our flesh. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to get sick. He knows what it means to have the, have the need of food and water to sustain His life. He knows what it means to go into a room and have everyone in the room whisper behind your back. He knows even a more hurtful blow 
He knows what it is to receive word that your mother and brothers are outside and they think you're crazy and they want to take you home. Can you imagine the hurt that the Savior suffered because He had to take on your flesh and my flesh? The writer of Hebrews says He did this for one purpose. From the manger to the cross is one great event. Jesus Christ came to kill death and kill Satan. He came to set you free from the fear that you are a slave to and that I'm a slave to so that we don't fear death anymore. Those are big thoughts. I mean, I, I, I can't really do it justice, but just listen to these words. For surely, surely it is not angels that He helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Paul in one of the most theological renderings in Paul's uh, account of this incarnation is in Philippians chapter 2. One of the most famous passages Paul writes, possibly. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. You want to know the difference between dwelling with God and living in the womb of a virgin? is to go from everything to nothing. That's the step Jesus made for you and for me. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He became nothing for our sake. Taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. He was born just like we were born. Mary suffered with childbearing pains just like you women who have given birth suffered with childbearing pains. This is a real birth brought about by a real Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that hovered over the womb of the innocent Virgin Mary and then brought forth a child, the eternal Son of God. This is a blessing, not a scandal. There was a difficult decision to be made by a just man. Our text tells us in verse 19 that her husband, notice it calls him a husband. That's how serious betrothal was. And her husband Joseph being a just man. What does it mean that he's a just man? It means that he's righteous according to the law of God. It means that he takes God's word as perfect and it is to be applied to his life intimately. He knows the law and he follows the law. He's a just man. And unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Now I want to tell you, this decision, guys, was very difficult. I want you to do your best to put on Joseph's shoes for a moment. You're living in a culture that doesn't accept fornication nor adultery. That's hard to imagine in our day. Most of us weren't raised in that world. Fornication was expected of young men. But in his day, it was totally forbidden. 
It was robbing her family of the family honor for him to take her before their marriage vows were spoken publicly. So he has a difficult decision. Is he going to allow the community to believe that he is an unjust man? The Bible says he's just. Or is he going to follow the law? Deuteronomy 22, verses 20 through 22 are very clear. A fornicator or an adulterer, in this case, was to be taken to the steps of her father's home. And she was to be stoned in front of her family and in front of the community. Because God doesn't tolerate sexual impurity. He's a just man. This is the decision he must make. Will I follow the law? Will I take her to her father, put her at the doorstep, knock on the door, and when he comes, throw the first stone? Will I kill her? Or will I follow Deuteronomy 24 verse 1? Where God allows, in some circumstances, divorce. Neither option is real appealing, is it? For a just man. He knows what must be done, but you can tell he's in agony. Notice what the text says. He's unwilling to put her to shame. That means he's unwilling to follow Deuteronomy 22. He's unwilling to take her publicly and announce her sin and then stone her. He doesn't want to do that. So he decides, I will divorce her quietly. I will, I will follow Deuteronomy 24.1. I will, I will put her away so that no one else knows. The alternate route of divorce is no better to, in his mind, you would think, than stoning. But he decides because he's a man of justice and love Obviously, and mercy, he will do this. Think about his disappointment. At this point, he has probably labored over six months to prepare for his beautiful bride, only to find this out. Only to find out that she's not been faithful in his mind. The way of suffering and disappointment is often God's way. Isn't it? We hear in Joseph's story the echo of Romans 8.28. For we know that God works all things together for good to those who loved Him and are called according to His purpose. This tragedy, this scandal, this apparent total disappointment must fit in a text like Romans 8.28. It must fit in a place like Job 1-2. through well, we find out that Job, a just and righteous man in his day, loses everything because God had a plan he knew nothing about. We must think about Joseph's namesake from the Old Testament, right? I mean, God gave the young boy Joseph in Genesis dreams of being a ruler over his family and all of his family worshiping at his feet. And then how did God do it? He just brought him to power and gave him a position? No. He threw him in the bottom of a well. And he brought him up and sold him to the Midianites. And they sold him to Potiphar. And he was wrongly accused of adultery. And he was put in prison and forgotten. And he interpreted dreams for others who forgot him again. 
And then he was brought to the right hand of the power of Egypt at Pharaoh's hand. And then, lo and behold, his brothers come to him to worship. God's fulfillment of God's promises often take the turn of suffering and disappointment. But like his namesake in the Old Testament, this Joseph is a godly man who sees God at work where others may not. 2 Corinthians 4 you have to think he had a truth like that in his mind at this point. 2 Corinthians 4, 13-18 where Paul says these light and momentary afflictions are not worthy of comparison to the weight of glory they are preparing for me. So how do you survive in a day like Joseph's day or in a day like the day you may be facing? How do you survive during suffering and disappointment? You set your eyes on eternal things that you cannot see. Your eyes of faith lock in there and you say, I will follow God no matter the cost. How do you survive? How do you survive Nick Ripkin's experience in Somalia where he one day walking through the street found a little five-year-old boy holding a landmine trying to depress it like a toy. He sees it. He flies to the boy without disturbing him. He comes behind and snatches away the landmine only to find out the bottom's hollowed out. It's only the trigger device, no explosives. How do you survive knowing that that five-year-old boy probably will not see adulthood, never hear the gospel, and will be blown to bits one day playing with a real mind? In a country where there's no church, very few Christians, no presence of the gospel. How do you survive in that day? That's where Joseph is in his life, in this moment. How will I survive? How will I take this and turn it and see it turned for good? I know God has a plan, but what is God doing? That's where we see him in verse 19. It's a difficult decision for a just man. But thirdly, in our, in, our, uh, in our text, we see that the call of God, the call of God is to father the Savior. Verses 20 through 23. Look at that with me. But as he considered these things, Deuteronomy 22, stoning his wife, Deuteronomy 24, divorcing his wife, he's trying to weigh it out. What will I do? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph is given a revelation from God. How will you survive in a moment of trouble? You will hold on to the revelation from God. Just like Joseph. Now Joseph received his from an angel. Where do you receive yours from? The pages of Holy Scripture. How will you survive? Some of you will hopefully one day grow up and go on a mission field and face what Mr. Ripken faced. How will you survive? The revelation of God. Joseph 
could not have made the decision to father the child the way he did except God told him to do it. You don't get a dream. You don't get a voice. You get the plenary Word of God. Perfect in every way. Joseph is given a revelation from the angel. What is the revelation? Mary, Mary, name the child, provide for Jesus. That's what he's told basically in verses 20 and 21. Now let's go through that step by step. What the angel said is, I know what you think you know, but you don't know. Marry her because she's innocent. I want you to think. It sounds so, so easy to believe now, doesn't it? Looking back over history, seeing the rest of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension to heaven. At this, at this point, you can look and say, well, sure he wanted to father Jesus. Sure he wanted to marry Mary. She was special. But in his shoes, I mean, even though it's the angel of the Lord, you have to think normal fleshly thoughts had to come like, are you serious? Right? I mean, come on. That's just not how it works. Marry this woman, the angel says. Take her as your own. Secondly, he's told, name the son. What does it mean to name the son? Joseph becomes an adoptive father. That's what it means. Joseph takes a boy that's not his own and makes him his own. When we were in the process of adoption, I would come to this text often in days of discouragement and realize this has always been the way God works. He takes the fatherless, in human terms Jesus was fatherless, and He gives them fathers. Because that's who He is. That's His very character. That's His name. The Father to the fatherless. So though he had a heavenly father, Jesus had no earthly father, so how would this be resolved? Joseph would marry his wife and he would name the son. If he had not named the son, then the community could say, well, he hasn't taken that boy. That, he's, he's, he's not doing what a Jewish father does. He's not giving the name. So therefore, they would have pounced on that. Rumor mill would have run. Oh, this, she really was indecent. He's not claiming this child. No, Joseph takes the newborn and names him Jesus. When you name it, you claim it. When you name it, you take it as your possession. You take it into your own. You love. I was talking with a friend of mine who discipled me in college this week. He and his wife just adopted a child from Ethiopia. And uh, he was calling me and telling me all about the experience. And he had been talking. We'd been talking the whole time. And he had said, Carlton, I just don't know if I can love this child the way I love my other four. I mean, I just don't know how that works. And I said, trust me, it works. When you see that baby, you will look it in its eyes and you will say, that's mine. And you will instinctively want to name the child and take it in as your own. He called me this week. He said, you know what? He said, it's just like you said. I walked through the door and I was still in my heart thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I, I just ain't sure I can love another child. My wife's all excited. I'm like, I'll be excited for her, you know. I don't want to look like a bad guy. He said, but Carl, when they brought our little boy around the corner and my eyes met his, my heart leapt. And I said, that's my boy. 
Joseph had that same experience. When Jesus is born, I imagine Joseph's heart leaps out and says, God has been faithful. This is my boy. And he named him. Just as the angel said. And he not only named him, but he provided for him. We don't have it in our text here, but in Luke, it's made clear that Joseph takes full responsibility for Jesus in his childhood. He feeds him, he clothes him, he gives him a trade, he takes, takes him as his own. There's no difference ever expressed. Joseph receives revelation and he follows the command and he's comforted with the truth of God's Word. Joseph's comfort in this day, I can only imagine, is this. That God, he, a man like Joseph, knowing the Scriptures like he did, being a just man, looked back to Genesis, I can imagine, and said, Genesis 3.15 says that she will bring forth a son and he will crush the head of the serpent. And then in Genesis 12, God said to our father Abraham, your offspring will bless the nations and they will, be, they will bring blessings to him. And then I can imagine that he remembered the promise to the king, David, his forefather, David, where God said, the throne will never depart from your house. And then I can only imagine as he moved down through time that he came to Isaiah 7, verse 14 in his mind. In verse 10, Ahaz received a prophecy Verse 14, that prophecy is, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall, and, and shall call His name Emmanuel. I can only imagine He saw that verse in His mind's eye. And He probably saw Isaiah 9, verse Six, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The hope of Joseph is your hope. It's the promise of God fulfilled in Jesus. And so after naming this son and going back through his mind's eye to all the promises of God, can you imagine the joy that welled up inside of him? The shadows and types of the Old Testament are being brought to a final completion in the one person, Jesus Christ. And he gets the privilege of human father to this God in the flesh. What legacy does he leave? Joseph leaves us the legacy of obedience. This is where I want to end. Practically calling you to follow the example of Joseph. Verses 24 and 25 tell us this. He had this vision, this dream, and the angel gave him these commands and told him it was the fulfillment of Isaiah 7 verse 14. And verse 24 says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph leaves an obedience legacy. He had a dream. He went to sleep pondering in his mind, stoning or divorce? Divorce or stoning? Okay, I'll go with divorce. It's the merciful and just way to handle this. I'll follow 
God's Word. And he went to sleep. He had a revelation from God. And he woke up just as resolute, I will obey. That's a legacy, people, of obedience. It leaves me a question for you. Are you obeying the revelation of God this way in your life today? In all of life's situations, the Word of God speaks truth to us. And do we do it? Do we follow it? Do we obey it? Joseph, when he woke, did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. What did he do? He took his wife. Immediate and full obedience is given to us in verse 24. He took his wife. Not only that, but he had an unwavering commitment to holiness. His obedience included holiness. Verse 25. And he did not know her until she had given birth to the child. This will be a virgin conception and she will remain a virgin until Jesus is born. Talk about resolute. Talk about committed. He marries her takes her into his home and then refrains from any sexual contact to prove the Word of the Lord true. Obedience is costly. It takes unwavering commitment to holiness. And he has an unfailing confidence in the promise of God. How do we know he has an unfailing confidence in the promise of God? Verse 25 ends with a very simple sentence. And he called his name Jesus. Not Joseph. Jesus. Yahshua. God saves. He believed God's Word. The legacy that Joseph has left us is a legacy that in the most scandalous event of his life, he heard the Word of the Lord and did the most difficult thing you could do. He took the shame of marrying a pregnant woman. He named the child Jesus because he believed the promise of God. So, men and women, children... The appeal of this story, the appeal of this story is not romantic, cold winter's night, snuggled in a little barn, having a baby. The appeal of this story is God keeps His Word. He works through suffering. He holds you when you think you have no hope. And He infuses into you faith to obey. He will do it for you. He will do it today for you. He will give you the faith like Joseph to just hear His Word and follow and obey. This truly is the most amazing story the world has ever known. I, as I think about this, I think about the power of this story, I'm reminded that we still live in a world where promises hold in the balance for us. 
The promises of the Old Covenant have been realized in Jesus, but the completion of the promises are still to be coming in the days to come. And until then, we face tremendous strife and suffering, don't we? All of us do. There's no exceptions. This past uh, two weeks ago, my grandmother had a stroke. She laid in in her house for about six hours. Nobody. My cousin went over and found her. She's recovering. My brother and I and our families this week will go home and visit her. While we're there, we'll visit my mother. In the last two or three weeks, my mom's taken a drastic turn down. She eats two or three bites a day. She drinks about four ounces of fluid. She's in severe pain. She's suffering. I know what it is to suffer. We have people who've lost their sisters. People who've lost other loved ones. Families that are torn by conflict and dissension and disagreement. All the holiday season does is dredge up pain for you, it seems like. And so you're not that much different than Joseph, right? You're in a very difficult place. All I'm calling on you to do and all God calls on you to do is believe in His revelation. The Word of God is true. Take it. Apply it. Obey it. And watch God work to bring about His glorious ends in your life. You will never understand it all. You will never comprehend it in this life exactly what God's doing. But in the day that Christ comes, all that suffering will finally be resolved and make sense. And His name will be praised. So, obedience to what God has taught us brings blessing because God is a Savior. 